This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zacharin, assistant editor of the New Books Network. Today, I'm speaking with Yarmo Kotelaini about his book, Sustainable Prosperity in the Gulf, From Miracle to Method. Yarmo has held several positions in the financial services sector and at government-related entities in the Gulf region. This book considers the current and future prospects for the Gulf region. Specifically, what role would the region play in the emerging multipolar world order? Yarmo, thank you for joining me today on the New Books Network. You're very much for having me. So much has, has gone on in the past, past few weeks. This just really changed the dynamics of the region, uh, but but I think that that there's a lot of really great context here for that that this book provides, uh, and also just just fascinating uh, about how, how you uh, have have approached this study. But before jumping to the book, I was wondering if you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Right. So I am um, by training an economist and economic historian. After a Dabbling in the academia a little bit, I became a financial and uh, economic consultant with a primary focus on emerging markets. I've been in the Gulf region for the best part of the past two decades, first uh, in Saudi Arabia, then more recently in Bahrain, as you said, working in the financial sector development, working in the financial services sector itself. And, and various government entities really always with a primary focus at looking at economic development related uh, issues, which of course in this part of the uh, world, as the book tries to show, remains uh, an ongoing fascinating story. Absolutely. And just for context for listeners, which countries constitute the Arab Gulf? Well, that question actually does not have an unequivocal answer. There have been different answers over the years, uh, even even quite recently. But the way I have defined it uh, in this book is in terms of the current membership of the Gulf Gulf Cooperation Council, which uh, brings together, of course, Saudi Arabia as the largest economy, then Kuwait, Bahrain, Qatar, the United Arab Emirates, and Omar. Uh, but sometimes people have included the entire Arab peninsula, sometimes also some of the adjacent countries. 
And obviously, it will be impossible for you to to do this all in a, in one one quick answer. But could you give just a, a brief overview of the history of the Arab Gulf up until the 20th century? Just just that which is relevant to this to this conversation. All right. Well, well, there's a lot of it that is relevant, uh, but it, it, it's a history of contrasts, and, and and obviously this book focuses uh, primarily on the economic side of things. I think what's interesting about the peninsula when you when you look at the map, obviously you can see a very large peninsula. Uh, if your map has colors, you can probably see a lot of brown, which uh, is indicative of the fact that. This is a very arid uh, peninsula with an with an extreme uh, climate. It is one of the most water scarce uh, parts of the world. Uh, historically, a peninsula with a relatively limited, in fact, an extremely limited, known uh, resource uh, base, and partly because of the climate and the resource base, historically a very very small uh, resident population. But also a glance at the at the map will show that this is a region with a very strategic location. It is literally hugged on on all sides, uh, whether by uh, Eastern Africa or on the northern side, of course, uh, Western Asia and and to the north, the Levant, and uh, on the south uh, eastern side. Obviously, the Arabian Sea, which itself is an interesting geography, because what it meant is that because of the seasonal trade winds, it essentially brought uh, the peninsula into contact with East Africa and the Indian subcontinent and, and really made trade, long distance trade, the opportunity, the means for this region to overcome those extreme resource constraints that it suffered from. So. In, in a sense, openness uh, became an important part of the, of the regional uh, development formula early on. Of course, openness is something that was needed uh, for monetizing what the region had. And historically, that was things like pearls, especially in the, in the Gulf, dates, horses. These were things that the region exported, not a very large range of things. And of course, imported many, many uh, uh, other things. But of course, what also is important about this openness is that uh, extreme openness also was always a source of uh, vulnerability. It was an advantage that was always con contested outside of the Gulf region by other countries that share some of the similar geographic benefits, but also within the region. So these countries obviously all by and large, had similar initial conditions, similar opportunity sets, and this has always entailed a, a degree of uh, competition. Of course, this then left the region vulnerable to external shocks. And what's relevant in this context for this history was in the, in the 1930s, in particular, of course, the rise of early culture in Japan put an end to the fur fishing sector in this part of the world, which had been the primary driver of, of prosperity uh, and, and became a major moment of reckoning, coinciding, of course, with the Great Depression, which also tested trade. One of the most uh, important things was the discovery of oil uh, in the region. So how did this discovery transform the region? It profoundly transformed the region. Of course, what was 
fascinating about the timing is this this was a story that had been in the making for some time. And what made the regional rulers interested in the idea back in the 20s and, and, and 30s was the fact that uh, they were desperate for new so sources of income after the curling uh, industry began to uh, decline. That had been a major source of income for them. So, of course, 1932 was the first regional oil discovery in Bahrain. And, and, and then over the subsequent three decades plus, that story uh, ultimately went regional. So this was almost like a deus ex machina, something that rescued uh, this region from the verge of, of uh, abject uh, poverty uh, and, and created what I call the oil government uh, nexus. Of course, initially the oil sector was developed by the international American and British oil majors uh, of, the, of the day, uh, the local countries simply didn't have the resources, the local countries became effectively residual claimants. So they raised their money by taxing these oil uh, exports. And of course, they received uh, royalties from these uh, oil companies. Uh, and starting from this low base, this completely transformed the regional economic model. So government revenues literally shot through the roof by uh, increasing several hundred folds in, uh, in all these countries. Um, and, uh, you know, giving this region that was amidst a major economic crisis and never had been that prosperous to begin with, an opportunity to start uh, driving uh, economic development. Now, in some ways, initially, everything was easy. But of course, as the government sector expanded, the government started investing more in, in different areas in an environment where oil really now was the sole source of wealth, 90 plus percent of government uh, revenues. What very quickly then became the story is how to ensure that you can get uh, more uh, oil income. And, and, and this then triggered conversations in terms of how to increase the revenue share, how to increase uh, national control and these countries started creating some parallel national companies in this space, but also how to better control the oil price dynamic, which of course by 1960 then uh, gave a rise to OPEC. And essentially the way I would simplify this early oil story up until the 1970s is it was a case of the policy discussion around oil moving from a primarily distribution or distributive focus, in other words, how do we how do we spread the wealth that we are getting to something much more productive? In other words, how do we take what is clearly the main natural resource that we have and use that to drive economic and so social development more holistically? And that story started changing quite quickly in the 70s when, of course, the oil uh, companies were, were nationalized and a much more broad-based um, development narrative began to emerge. Right, yeah, the, the, um, the you know, before, obviously, like, the, the Seven Sisters were extremely dominant, um, the, 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 oil, the main Western oil majors, uh, you, you've, you've already started to talk a little bit about how, how transformative the 70s were, but, but what are some of the other ways that the region was transformed by by the uh, politics of the 1970s. 
So the 1970s is is really when the, the regional economies began to assert control over their economic policies. So instead of just being residual claimants, they started looking at uh, things like extracting more value out of oil. They started making many more downstream investments, whether it was in oil uh, refineries or it was in, in petrochemicals. Another resource that obviously often sort of was extracted along with oil, uh, but had been largely wasted up until that point was natural gas. And that obviously became an increasingly important energy source and uh, as well as a source of an uh, uh, input for the, for the petrochemical sector, uh, the, the, the rising manufacturing sector. Of course, the 1970s uh, became a time when suddenly all these uh, financial constraints that had been an issue in the past were almost uh, blown away. The governments had a lot more money to distribute amidst what for the West became the oil crisis, but for the region became the first real uh, oil boom. Uh, and this was also then used to drive a whole uh, host of infrastructure investments, uh, efforts to stimulate uh, new types of economic activity, new sectors. There were massive investments made in healthcare, uh, education, uh, etc. Of course, in many cases, a lot of money that was also effectively wasted in this haste, of, haste to develop when, of course, prices then uh, very quickly started going up. But what also happened in the region is that given very modest initial conditions that we started on with, in other words, uh, a tiny population base, as the growing oil sector and these other sectors required talent, that talent by and large then had to be imported from the rest of the world. And that started uh, driving a rapid change in the composition of the labor force. The locals increasingly were channeled the public sector, the private sector was more and more in the uh, hands of uh, expatriates, etc. Um, Overall, the population grew, longer life expectancy, better living standards, and the population uh, became increasingly urbanized. Uh, and, and today, this region is really one of the most urbanized geographies around the world. So, so very multifaceted, broad-based, which found transformative change on all you mentioned a little bit about how they started to diversify with the all the all the uh, the oil money that was coming in. Uh, I was wondering if you could go a little a little more into into that. You know the the different uh, ways in which they sought to diversify their economy away from from just oil. Right. So what's interesting, of course, about oil is that uh, initially the oil well sort of. Uh, blew away all these worries of of yesteryear, but it also became a clear that oil could be quite a fickle friend. Of course, the ability of these countries to control oil prices was limited, especially to begin with. And 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 this a dominance of oil in the economic structure then entailed dramatic macroeconomic volatility as those prices uh, varied uh, over the years. 
The other thing that became a major concern was that oil, of course, is a finite resource. And, and at the time already, by the 1970s, the expected lifespan of the regional oil endowments, in many cases, had become quite short. So, for instance, in the early 70s, Saudi Arabia was looking at less than four decades of uh, oil at the prevailing technology and, and rates of extraction. Of course, both things have, have changed since then. So they were they were increasingly concerned with uh, ideas around uh, trying to create a more sustainable uh, basis for, for development, which of course was easier said than done. Now, the easiest way of doing this, and, and in fact, in some ways, the earliest way to do this was uh, what people call financial diversification. So in other words, they took the oil income and they invested it in, in, in various things, typically outside of these countries, because of course the local markets and opportunities were very limited to, to begin with. And this is what eventually gave rise to what we today think of as the sovereign uh, wealth fund. Uh, the other thing is they started channeling some of this oil uh, money, oil windfall, into value chain capture, as I said. So the focus was very heavily on these downstream activities and, and petrochemicals. And then, of course, you had what I would call almost a diversification by default as the oil drove, as oil drove the growth of these economies it gave rise to other activities. So there was more and more import trade as the region became more uh, prosperous. So the logistics sector developed. Uh, there was obviously a massive construction boom as some of the money was channeled into infrastructure development, residential development. There was more and more, uh, especially energy intensive uh, manufacturing. And then, of course, uh, the petrodollars uh, started driving the growth and diversification of uh, financial uh, services. But, but really, while the ambitions were, were there and there was a lot of effort, there was an increasing focus on, on economic planning at, at that time, they faced a lot of uh, practical challenges, one of them being absorption concerns. How much can you invest in economies that ultimately were quite small and quite simple in their structure. Um, as they sought to develop their export-oriented manufacturing industry, they often faced issues with protectionism. So Western countries, Asian countries trying to protect their legacy industries. And this was still well before the heyday of the Washington consensus when those, when those trade barriers really came down. And they, they faced a lot of issues with productivity as well, because as the region grew more prosperous, more and more money then started going into very basic businesses, small shops, uh, restaurants, coffee shops, etc. This gave rise to opportunities, but it didn't necessarily add very much value. What is more interesting about this early diversification story is what started to happen in the lower Gulf. So essentially, Qatar, uh, uh, especially the UAE, to an extent, Oman, these are countries that, in the case of the UAE and Oman, uh, discovered their oil resources much later 
than the North. So as the North, in a sense, sank into these crises of the 80s and 90s, these other countries were still ramping up their oil sector and seeing seeing more revenue because of increased production. And, and you have the beginnings of interesting new stories. So Dubai, for instance, started investing very heavily in connective infrastructure and trade. You had initiatives such as the uh, first the port Rashid seaport, then Jebel Ali, which ultimately in 85 became the first free zone in the region and the major uh, trade hub, of course, Emirates Airlines. Qatar, of course, discovered their large gas endowments, and that became a driver for local gas-based uh, manufacturing as well as gas exports. And Oman uh, essentially started a very broad-based diversification drive from a lower base. But especially the Jebel Ali Emirates story is interesting in the sense that it is no longer just about oil. It is much more sort of reminiscent of the pre-oil era, the region capitalizing on its location and its ability to connect different parts of the world. You mentioned also a little bit before about the um, the demographics, but I was also, I was wondering if you could also get into that a little bit more, just the demographics of the region, uh, and, and how those have shifted um, as well. Yes. So like so many other things, this, uh, this uh, rush to develop amidst this oil plenty uh, really changed things at a dramatic breakneck pace. Uh, when we when we think back a century ago, a century ago, so just before the uh, oil era, of course, it's thought that we have a lot of uh, accurate, detailed statistics from that era. But the population base of the region at that time was not much more than 2 million uh, in total, maybe around 2.5 million people. And as recently as, for instance, 1971, when the United Arab Emirates came into being as a sovereign country, they had a resident population of 210,000 people. And Qatar, way less than uh, than 100,000. So. The population base was, was very small uh, and reflective, of course, of the resource uh, limitations and the climate. As uh, the oil well started pushing away the uh, constraints of the past, the population started to grow. Started to grow because of increased life expectancy and improving health. So there was, if you like, that demographic uh, dividend uh, locally but also started increasing because of this need to import uh, manpower that, that really was needed uh, for developing all these uh, new economic activities that the regional government were pursuing. So we have seen a more than 20-fold increase in the regional resident population over the past century. We're now pushing around 60 million people. So, so a dramatic change um, in absolute terms, of course, compared to the countries around it, the region still is not a particularly populous uh, region. So certain fundamentals have, have not completely changed. Uh, the other thing, of course, is that 
a century ago, I mentioned that there was very little human capital or social infrastructure. There were only a handful of schools. Government education is something that really only starts in the 1930s, in, well, by the 1930s, in, in, in Bahrain and Saudi Arabia, and, and, and then gradually expands throughout the rest of the region. So you have this massive shortage of skills. Similarly, healthcare, there, were, there was minimal modern healthcare up until the sort of middle of the, the 20th century, really. Um, and as the region expanded, we had a situation where increasingly private sector economic activities came to be linked with the expatriate population, which in most countries quickly grew into an overwhelming majority of the labor force, and in, in many countries growing to an absolute majority of the local resident population. And, and the nationals, by and large, then flocked into the, the public sector, and it, it sort of came uh, to be seen as the, as the sort of default uh, employer of uh, nationals. Um, and what we ended up with is a situation where among the nationals, uh, the economic participation was quite low by international standards. It still is fairly low by international standards, partly because people had access to a lot of uh, government benefits and so forth. And their economic involvement, with some notable exceptions, was very much focused on the public sector. Uh, what we also ended up with was what I call the, the Gulf so as the private sector developed this growing systemic dependency on expatriate labor, uh, we ended up in a situation where an originally population poor but capital-rich region became highly labor-intensive. So the kinds of activities that started growing with this easy access to labor imports, whether it was in the neighbor, neighbor from the neighboring regions or, or also to an extent from Europe and, and North America. And the kinds of sectors that absorb more and more of this labor than were sectors like trade and, and construction. And because the labor was available at low cost, these sectors tended to be quite low in, in, in terms of uh, productivity. And, and one of the sort of enduring stories in the regional policy development over the past several decades is how to move away from the entrenched patterns, which have really been embedded in, in traditional uh, attitudes, how to activate the local human capital, get more people into economic activity and start to capitalize on their human uh, capital and skills at a time when, of course, the regional population is better educated um, than ever before. And how to start reducing this uh, high labor intensity and this systemic dependency on expatriate labor. And I think that this is something where things are beginning to change, but it still remains very much working. Right. And part of, part of that, you look at how they, how they have developed their financial sectors uh, starting in the second half of the 20th century. So, so what what has has the development of the financial sectors looked like there, uh, and has that development 
uh, you, you know, looked looked different than than it than it might might have uh, been developed in the West. Yes, it definitely has looked very different. So I talked about the recent history by by global standards of social infrastructure. The same is true for international services. So it is only a century ago that the region uh, first in in Bahrain and Saudi Arabia acquired its first modern bank. Of course, historically, there were some setups for uh, credit and, and, and sort of rudimentary insurance among the, the merchant community. But it, it, it's really only uh, in the uh, 1920s that we started seeing the beginning of modern modern banking. And then, of course, as the oil liquidity grew uh, very quickly, more and more foreign banks uh, came in. So initially, the, the, the banking sector was created by foreign banks, as had been the oil sector by foreign oil companies. It's only in the... 50s that we start seeing local merchants come together and create uh, national institutions in the in the banking space. And, and what is interesting about the early development of financial services in the region was that it was very narrow and it was very reactive. So really, up until the late uh, 20th century, for all intents and purposes, it remained uh, a story of bank and to an ex extent even simpler sort of money exchange uh, bureaus which which were quite uh, common and and the banks remained not really to solve an economic problem but in a reactive manner to serve as depository of the uh, oil well and and then to channel this into uh, very basic activities. So most of the banking products initially were funding for trade and, and, and funding for construction. And, and when people then wanted to do things like save some of the oil windfall, this, this typically had to initially be done outside of the, of the region. So it, it's really in the 1970s when the oil boom really takes off that uh, the government step in and start trying to compensate for the limitations of the banking sector and, and, and start creating different kinds of special government vehicles that are designed to then channel money into particular activities, whether it's manufacturing or it's real estate or agricultural activities or whatever. Uh, and and uh, that is partly because, of course, the banks uh, face some systemic issues in terms of cannabis matches, etc. All of this uh, has a major reality shock as oil prices turned down in, in the uh, 80s. But uh, a lot of these government vehicles have gone there. And, and, and then in response to that crisis, the region really starts focusing on, on real uh, banking regulation and transparency. And it's at that point that we start seeing the banking sector beginning to play the sort of traditional, if you like, textbook role of allocating capital. So not just pooling capital, but allocating it productively into different uh, purposes. Another big story of this, of course, in the 1970s, 
Hain became becomes the region's first financial center, uh, partly because Bahrain adopts very progressive regulations and also becomes a home for these Lebanese bankers that, of course, leave the country. Well, I missed the Lebanon's uh, civil war uh, at the time. So the region begins to put itself on the map of uh, international uh, finance and Bahrain's development at that time is very, very rapid. We also start seeing the emergence of, of uh, capital markets, first with the Kuwait Stock Exchange, which has its own ups and downs as it deals with this uh, ebb and tide of, of oil uh, liquidity. But it's really in the only in the 21st century that there is a structured, successful effort to create equity capital markets and also to create more structure around the uh, fixed income markets, which is very much driven by government funding in this part of the world. So today, the region has a fairly developed and diverse financial sector. It still is not, I would say, serving uh, the economy evenly. It tends to focus more on the bigger corporates and on the public sector. But it has come a long way. Uh, and there are well-established stock markets. Uh, the region is in included in international benchmark indices. And, and I think the financial sector is well-positioned to become a, a driver rather than just a reflection of the region's economic development. What would you see are the biggest challenges faced when it comes to further diversifying investment for the region? Yeah, look, I think in the in the domestic context, of course, uh, the the size of the regional economy uh, still remains a, a challenge. So the ability of the economy to absorb uh, more capital uh, is an issue. There's there's been a lot of success in terms of mobilizing capital behind physical infrastructure, connective infrastructure, real estate. That obviously is a story that uh, after a point started running into diminishing returns and an area where activity is going to have to become more and more focused. I think there are, there are still limitations in terms of regulation. So for instance, how to get banks to invest more money beyond the top tier of the financial sector and, and make efficient capital capital allocation a driver of things like SME development. I think this is an area that is receiving much more attention uh, today. But by and large, when we look at the structure of the regional corporate sector, we have a multitude of typically relatively low low productivity SMEs and a small number of, of big companies that compete uh, on an international level. And, 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 and clearly one of the big development needs is how to transform uh, more of this uh, of this SME sector. Now, obviously, inevitably, a part of the region's investment narrative is also investing outside of the region. So the region today has some of the deepest deepest um, pools of both sovereign and non-sovereign uh, private capital. How to use that capital efficiently? 
and how to use it in a way that can fuel the region's uh, development narrative. So, of course, one of the stories that we have started to see increasingly in recent years is these regional bonds in particular acquiring businesses, uh, assets outside of the region, but doing so in a way that is no longer just about generating a financial return, but also about creating a link to the regional economy and, and bringing some of this activity to the Gulf region and using that as a way of, of driving uh, economic uh, diversification. So yes, there are limitations, but I think this has become an increasingly dynamic story. And and moving moving just beyond just looking more broadly uh, at the relations between the Gulf states, uh, what are those relations like? And then also just in addition to to the broader Middle East region, what are the overall uh, relationships like with the Gulf states? Right. So of course, uh, the Gulf countries, in a sense, are a community of of nations, or if you like, even earlier tribes that have a lot of communality in terms of their culture, in terms of their history, living conditions, language, etc. So I think I think there is a sense of a Gulf identity that at some level has has probably always existed and that has been becoming uh, stronger uh, in recent years, partly because of institutions such as the Gulf Cooperation Council, which of course was established in, in 1981 for the purpose of driving economic and, and other kinds of integration yeah. in the region. Uh, I think in many ways, the region effectively today defines itself by what it is, is not. So in relation to the, to the surrounding geographies and and again, in that sense, I think there there has been this growing sense of Gulf exceptionalism, uh, a part of the world which has seen uh, social political con- continuity, economic prosperity, and this this very impressive development story. So that that, in a sense, is the is the positive story, and of course, the openness and 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 the development case of this part of the world uh, means that uh, this uh, there's, there's a very good story of, of regional togetherness and, and uh, development opportunity. At the same time, historically, of course, when you when you look at all the regional countries, they shared, as I said earlier, very similar initial uh, conditions. And they shared very similar, uh, if you like, development opportunities and needs. And I think that what this then inevitably meant was that they were all sort of left trying to drive their progress, their development from a fairly, from fairly similar perspective. And I think that that is something that has also created an element of de facto rivalry and, and competition uh, among the among the regional uh, economy. So so they are all playing with with fairly uh, similar chips, 
and and there's there has been a certain amount of tactical thinking countries trying to acquire um, the first mover uh, advantage and in some cases being outshone by others who have come in later with uh, with sort of more uh, recent solutions technology and and, and bigger uh, resources of course there has also been concern uh, around duplication so to give one recent example goes around the turn of the millennium there was a global uh, sort of focus on creating financial centers the region joined in and and essentially most of the regional economies created financial centers of of one kind uh, or another so so that has meant that instead of collaborating uh, and building together, regional economies sometimes have uh, effectively competed with each other, which isn't necessarily always a bad thing. I think competition also can be a driver of efficiency. And, and obviously, in many ways, these efforts have also drawn more uh, attention to the region. Now, you also mentioned the broader uh, Middle East. Uh, and while the Gulf countries have had their disagreements within the region and still continue to have them, uh, of course, they are, they are no different from other parts of the world in, in that regard, what they do increasingly stand out from the, from the rest of the Middle East region by being, if you like, this oasis of, of prosperity, surrounded by countries, many of which face uh, very uh, challenging economic and, and social conditions. And, and in many cases, those uh, things have deteriorated over the past uh, decade uh, plus, certainly since the, since the global uh, financial crisis. So, so I think one of the interesting issues for the, for the Gulf countries, and I think we are in some ways beginning to see the early inklings of a change in this regard is how can the Gulf uh, which yet its success story beyond its own boundaries. I think historically, of course, the fact that it had very rapid demographic and economic growth meant that that it was most most businesses focused nationally, focused locally. I think now many of them have reached a point where they are ready to expand beyond the region, among other things expand into much more uh, populous uh, countries, uh, bigger markets, whether it's Egypt, Iraq, or other parts of the region. I think that is, that is one factor. There's more and more interest in creative connective infrastructure beyond the region, whether it is for uh, transportation, so railway links, air links, or it is uh, for things like energy connectivity. And, and of course, we've had more and more initiatives on the part of uh, Saudi Arabia, UAE, Qatar, to mobilize more of the sovereign capital in, in other parts of the region. Uh, so I think the, the Gulf region is in a position to start radiating more, uh, if you like, positive development impetus and, and energy even beyond its, its boundaries. Uh, bearing in mind, of course, that the the task very often is welcome. So you you also discuss in the book uh, climate change and 
how the uh, Gulf states are positioning themselves uh, to, to weather climate change uh, and regional instability. How do you see them going about this? Yes. So, so I think that one thing that has has become fairly clear in in recent years is that the region is much more focused on uh, containing and and ideally mitigating some of these uh, regional risks. And of course, we have until this recent tragic event in Palestine, we've seen a period of detente where a lot of these um, sort of uh, disputes that had existed, whether within the region or with respect, uh, that is to say within the Gulf region or with respect to other parts of the Middle East region, were being uh, addressed uh, and dealt with much more proactively than than positively than before. So, So I think that what we are beginning to see is a genuine desire to a enhance regional stability and, and and recognize that that is a positive factor for uh, driving these broader transformation ambitions so making the region a hub for international trade and finance but also for drawing more capital into the gulf region and also also into other parts of the of the middle east now, climate change, of course, is a is a very important story. Globally, it's a particularly important st- story in, in, in this part of the world, which has a very extreme climate and associated vulnerabilities to begin with. It is one of the most water-scarce parts of the world, whether we talk about the Gulf countries themselves or neighboring countries, which, of course, then potentially comes with it own uh, set of risks. And and I think that um, while the region historically has been known as a hydrocarbons producer and therefore a very energy intensive uh, region and potentially in many people's eyes as a, as a problem rather than a solution, I think policy has changed quite, quite quickly and significantly in this regard. So the position of the Gulf countries is very much that hydrocarbons will have to be part of the energy transition that is happening globally. But massive amounts of capital today are flowing into renewable energy, into energy efficiency, into innovation around the energy clusters, so things like green hydrogen, etc as well as interconnected infrastructure. So there have been connections now made to uh, the Levant. Uh, there are connections underway to Egypt. There have been discussions with India and, and, and potentially also between Egypt and, and, and Europe, which means that the region will soon enough be in a position to start producing a clean energy, not just for its own needs, but also for exporting it into other geographies so effectively it is in a in a position to start diversifying its own energy mix and and then future proofing its, its energy portfolio which is a very positive story the region is also innovating around things like uh, clean hydrocarbons so making sure that what extraction and development happens is done with minimal emissions as efficiently as possible, carbon storage, uh, but obviously 
of a huge interest also into mitigating the impact of, of climate change. So obviously globally at right now we're at, in a situation where I think as of this month we are we're probably above that 1.5 uh, degree uh, global warming target that was set in the Paris Agreement. So global warming is is getting uh, ahead of uh, our plans. And, and, and mitigation is becoming an increasingly important issue. Uh, so there's a lot of innovation happening around that, but there are also new plans around things like planting more, more greenery, designing spaces that are, that are much more sustainable and generally finding ways of hurting the carbon emissions of the region. So really potentially this green economy narrative is emerging as an important driver of economic diversification, uh, but also of sustainability. My final question, and obviously this will be, you know, it, it, this this will require maybe a bit of speculation, uh, but so much has just happened uh, in the past, past few weeks alone. But, but how do you see broadly the Gulf states positioning themselves in the emergent multipolar order? Yeah. So, uh, it, it is clear that today, a couple of things are One thing is that the region recognizes that its future has to be very heavily built around this age-old idea of open. Clearly, the, the old oil government nexus can no longer be a sufficient growth driver in its own right. The infrastructure story that became a big new narrative um, or dominant narrative in the early 21st century, what I call the Great Arabian Infrastructure Boom, that in its own right cannot be a growth driver either. Of course, there are big projects underway, things like like Neon, other other massive uh, in, investments. But, but at the end of the day, that story is past the point of diminishing returns in terms of its ROI. Uh, and, and more is needed to sustain growth at the, at the kind of rates that the, that the region needs. What is, what is also clear is that the region is uh, increasingly strategic about capitalizing on its traditional advantages in this new uh, multipolar world uh, order. And, and, and the way I would put it is Three things in, in, in particular are important. Number one, I think the, the region has become increasingly adept at creating a culture of ongoing change. So of course, there have been sort of these laboratories of innovation for some time, such as for instance, Dubai, which, which never was particularly well endowed with natural resources and has always tried to prosper by by thinking ahead, being one step ahead of, of others. Uh, the other recognition is that given these vulnerabilities uh, of openness and given the limitations of the local resource base, uh, the region has to be uh, has to be versatile. So, so therefore, it is it is uh, building an economic structure that is increasingly diversified. And, and, and as I said, increasingly dynamic. Uh, and, and thirdly, if openness is 
your key growth drivers. And obviously you manage, you maximize your opportunity with openness by being multi-directional. This is what I think has, has given rise to this posture of what I call strategic neutrality. So historically, of course, the foreign economic relations of the Gulf countries were very much focused on the West because the West was the main consumer of the oil that the Gulf countries produced, also uh, also the main supplier of the of many of these uh, other products that the Gulf countries imported. Well, very very import dependent uh, economies. And then, of course, there were ties to uh, Japan, Australia, etc. Today, the world has changed. We, of course, saw the rise of the emerging markets in the, in the Washington consensus states. We are looking at a world order where demographic growth and increasingly economic growth will very conveniently for the Gulf countries come from these uh, from these neighboring regions, uh, Asia and, and Africa. So in a sense, the old pre-oil order is, is reasserting itself and the, and the Gulf countries have been increasingly proactively building more and more multi-dimensional ties, especially with, with Asia. So of course, we've had China's uh, One Road, One Belt initiative, which very much involves the, the Middle East. We've seen dramatic changes in the ancient relationship that the Gulf region has with India, but uh, but that is now moving up the value curve. So it's no longer just the case of labor imports and energy exports. It's becoming a much more multidimensional uh, and extensive uh, and valuable relationships. But these countries really have been going uh, quite systematically about building ties. In, in all directions and really with the principle of more is better and, and, and they do not want to think of this as a zero-sum game. So they don't want to think of this as exclusive alliances. Why? Because also in a world that has become increasingly uh, unpredictable uh, in the 21st century, having this ability to connect to different geographies and therefore having the ability to pivot is obviously also a source of resilience and, and continuity, effectively risk management of these countries. So for instance, during the global financial crisis, as the West faced major economic instability, these countries started turning increasingly towards Asia and did so quite quickly. So this ability to pivot in response to different uh, circumstances is a uh, very important uh, part of uh, the development narrative. Uh, the other thing uh, that is becoming clear is that the Gulf region today, quite apart from having this unique uh, location uh, at the heart of the old world, is also has, has kind of amplified that by offering a combination of really world-class connective infrastructure, fantastic infrastructure, whether it's air, it's sea, uh, and increasingly even overland infrastructure uh, that connects the Gulf uh, to all other geographies around the world. The other thing that the Gulf today has, not 
entirely across the board, but increasingly uh, is world-class regulation. So of course the free zones, for instance, were set up with the specific purpose of offering world-class regulation uh, for their for their tenants. In many sectors, regulatory reform has been used as a growth driver. And all these economies today, there is the recognition that improving regulations, improving dispute re resolution, improving governance is a way of attracting capital and, and driving economic development and creating jobs. And the third thing, of course, is that today, the region really is uh, on the global uh, map and on global minds as never before. And in many people's eyes, it is valued for the kind of lifestyle that more and more parts of it, uh, parts of it represents. So in a sense, I think it was the Dubai model in the early 21st century that with this very proactive infrastructure development coupled with openness, started putting the putting the region on the map, started drawing talent uh, from all parts of the world. Now the Dubai story in many ways is a is a region-wide story. And the and the region, even though it is a young region, recognizes the importance of attracting uh, talent in order to drive productivity gains and drive its future. And I think in some ways the fact that um we see these very creative, innovative um, mega projects such as such as Neon is partly about the region putting new kinds of facts on the ground, gaining attention, uh, almost forcing the rest of the world to uh, to focus uh, on it. Obviously, as I said before, openness comes with this. Fundamentally, the region still is. Uh, a relatively population-poor region, um, but but I think by having this posture of um, multi-dimensional uh, development, multiple tools that it can it can work with, it can hope to associate and mitigate the rather mitigate the risks associated with this openness and quickly adapt to different. Uh, changing conditions. And finally, of course, the region has its extraordinary financial wealth, which it, it is also leveraging in increasingly uh, productive ways by building these partnerships with different different players uh, around, the, around the world. And doing so today in a way that is increasingly that of an increasing of an equal part. So many, many geographies uh, around the world welcome the Gulf countries as a partner because of this wealth, but also because of their uh, track record of social, economic, political continuity, and of course their track record of transformative development. They're very interesting. Uh, well, well, Yarma, thank you so much for, for being guests on the New Books Network. The book was Sustainable Prosperity in the Gulf from Your Cult to Method. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. My pleasure.